by the time that Nash comes down in the late 1580s, London is really abuzz with all sorts of, of playhouses of all stripes. He's entering a really vibrant kind of commercial recreational world. This is the period when London's medieval government, which covers the city alone, begins to find itself, as we're rather left behind, as the metropolis spreads out beyond the boundaries of its jurisdiction. Britain today feels an increasingly precarious place. Many of us aren't used to precarity, a condition of uncertainty and exposure as emotional as it is economic. But to the average Elizabethan, it was the norm. One writer in particular explored what it felt like to be living on the edge. He's not a household name, but he wrote and published ceaselessly through the turbulent 1590s. Welcome back to the precarious world of Thomas Nash, where we're exploring the underbelly of Elizabethan England through the life and writings of the author Thomas Nash. I'm Archie Cornish. In this episode, I'm joined by Vanessa Harding of Birkbeck, University of London, and Callan Davies of the University of Roehampton. We'll be thinking about places and spaces, especially Nash's London, what it was like as a place to live, work and have fun in, and how it related to the places beyond. Born in Suffolk in the 1560s, Nash remained in the east of England for university, graduating from St John's College, Cambridge, in 1586. A couple of years later, he journeyed south to London. As Professor of London History Vanessa Harding explains, he wasn't alone. It's important to think about immigrants in a very broad sense, so that I'm using it to cover both those who migrate from the English counties and those who come to England from abroad. So there'd always been migration from other parts of England, and that that's very strong in the 16th century. It's also now including people from Wales after the Union of England and Wales. And that there are migrants coming from the north of England as far as London, presumably on foot for most of the part. And that many of those, or the ones that we know most about, are what we might call betterment migrants, that they have a, a clear plan for what they're going to do, which is to seek an apprenticeship, um, seek service, seek some permanent employment. Inevitably, particularly in the 1590s, when there are severe problems around the country, there are a lot of subsistence migrants, people who essentially are driven off the land or cannot find work locally and who therefore move around and ultimately their destination may well be London. And then there are significant numbers of migrants coming, particularly from the low countries in the 1560s, 70s and 80s, and also from France, in many senses refugees from religious wars. They tend to differ from the English migrants in the sense that they often come as whole families, whereas English migrants tend to be younger people moving as singletons. London by the 1590s is more diverse in a general sense than it had been before, but it's not diverse in the way that we would understand it now, uh, in the sense that there are very few non-Europeans, very few people of colour. There are some, but not very many, um, and very few people who are non-Christian in their overall outlook. Nash moved around in London, looking for patronage and work. 
In the early 1590s, he lodged briefly with the printer John Danter in Holborn. Nowadays, we would think for people who know the geography of London, we would think of Holborn as the kind of real centre of London. I mean, it's, it's on the central line and it kind of sits in the middle of the tube map. Callan Davies of the University of Roehampton is also Assistant Manager of Research and Engagement at the Houses of Parliament. Hoban, near the Inns of Court and Legal London, sits on the boundary of two ancient cities. To its east is the heart of London, run by its city corporation, and to its west, well, Westminster, seat of royal power and Elizabeth I's court. Shops like Danter's were places of great significance for Nash, who loved exploring the possibilities of print. Yet, as Callan Davies explains, they also relate closely to other key places in literary London. The print shop forms a kind of ma- yeah, a major location for him. But I suppose one, one way of kind of thinking about how that fits into the wider culture of early modern London is to think about space like St Paul's. So St Paul's, you have a cathedral at the kind of dead centre of it and the cathedral yard. All surrounding this, you've got printers and stationers. This is the kind of literary hub, I suppose, if you're trying to buy something of early modern London. In the middle, or just to the right of the cathedral, you also have a playhouse from the kind of 1570s into the 1580s. So again, we're imagining Nash rocking up in London in 1588 or whatever it was, and there would have been an active playhouse right next to all these kind of stationers shops. And you can take some of the texts that Nash would have been buying and reading and possibly publishing and watch their movement either from the playhouse to the printing press and then to the stationer or vice versa. So we have a real kind of fluidity here. So the printing houses and the theatres were linked as spaces of play. Nash must have spent a lot of time in theatres. He wrote plays, after all, and enjoyed watching them. London's theatres hadn't been permanent fixtures for very long when he pitched up. The oldest one was called, not very imaginatively, The Theatre. The theatre's a really, a really interesting one. It's long been thought of as a sea change, a space that, that transformed London and that in turn transformed, I guess, the, the whole literary history <laughs> of, of, English, of English literature, partly because of its connection with Shakespeare. Um, and it was certainly doing something very, very interesting. It comes out of a, a series of buildings and financial investments over some 40 years figuring out how you can make money by staging kind of play and sport before the paying public. Um, and when, when the theatre was built in 1576, it took a huge amount of money and did something, I guess, slightly innovative in the sense that it, it modelled on this kind of classical vision of an arena. So it's a big, round <laughs> playing space and a galleried space. So when you would walk in it, You've got the kind of, say, the stage in front of you or to your right, and then you've got a series of galleries. Where you sat depended on your wealth and social status. But still, spaces like the theatre were unusually inclusive. I suppose the sort of theatres that we're talking about, and especially when they kind of expand in this later 16th century, are fascinating in that there aren't many other spaces in which you can gather a whole range of people from across the social spectrum. If you've been to London, you might have visited the reconstruction of Shakespeare's Globe. It's an impressive building and, fingers crossed, it isn't going anywhere soon. But in the 1590s, the theatres were, in more ways than one, spaces of precarity. An obvious example of that is the space, the theatre. I mean, this is the ultimate precarious building, if we're we're thinking of it like that. Because the, the space is leased 
and then it's mortgaged pretty soon after they've built uh, this grand, very expensive structure called the theatre. And then over time, there's a sort of long argument that happens with the landlord. The landlord essentially has the power. So leases can be granted as they are now for sort of a particular amount of years. I think it's granted for about 20 years um, in this instance for the theatre. And by the time it comes around to be renewed, the owner, the landlord, tells the, the, build, the people who own the theatre at that time, the Burbages, that they're very welcome to renew the lease uh, as long as they change the building to something that's not a playhouse. So you can keep the structure, but turn it into a block of flats or something like that. A tenement is the word that they like to use, which you know is a structure that can be used and subdivided for all sorts of things. So this idea that a building can just change its use, that you can just stick up a wall, put in a floor, this is a really common way of kind of understanding how buildings worked um, in, in Elizabethan England. Nobody thought that when you put up a timber structure like that, it would last forever. And in fact, the idea that this, th these raw materials might be reconfigured in particularly interesting ways are, you know, that's just a commonplace for Elizabethan and early modern England. And in fact, that's exactly what happens with the theatre. So they decide they're not going to renew a lease because they rather like the idea of running a playhouse. It's making them some money. It's kind of their main business uh, operation. So what they do is they dismantle the whole of the theatre, timber by timber, and they take a lot of that uh, timber and a lot of those materials over the river. And then eventually they get reincorporated into the structure that gets built as the globe in 1599. So, yeah. So when we're thinking about, the, I guess, the precariousness of a building, you can kind of think about how they mutate in, in these different ways, uh, sometimes to different uses and sometimes to different locations. It wasn't just the playhouses where London seemed colourful, though. As Vanessa Harding explains, Commercial London was increasingly conspicuous with luxury goods. The high end of the market is certainly something that characterises London. I mean, this is where the wealthiest clients, the wealthiest customers are to be found. And therefore, this is where people who manufacture luxuries of various kinds will also focus. It's very interesting when you look through the lists of aliens who've settled in England, how many of them bring high quality finishing skills, whether they're jewellery or goldsmithery or fine textile, silk winding, those sorts of things. I mean, you always find high quality craft skills in towns and cities, but you find these extremely high end, expensive material ones uh, in London. And I think it's also becoming perceived that London is a place where goods are displayed and sold. So it's partly, you know, persuading people to buy things they didn't know they wanted in the first place, offering this luxury, whether it is gold plate or fine textiles or clothing or furs. Nash was suspicious of this luxury market, or rather of people who bought clothes to dress as something they are not. Pierce Penniless, his pamphlet of 1592, features a vivid portrait of senior greediness. In the inner part of his ugly habitation stands greediness, prepared to devour all that enter, attired in a capuche of written parchment, buttoned down before with labels of wax and lined with sheep's fells for warmness, his cap furred with cat skins after the muscovy fashion and all too betasseled with angle hooks instead of aglets, ready to catch hold of all those to whom he shows any humbleness. For his breeches they were made of the lists of broadcloths which he had by letters patent assured him and his heirs to the utter overthrow of bow-cases and cushion-makers, and bombasted they were like beer-barrels with statute-merchants and forfeitures. 
The house, or rather the hell, where this earthworming captivated this beautiful substance, gold, was vast, large, strong-built and well-furnished, all save the kitchen, for that was no bigger than the cook's room in a ship. Too much finery and not enough food. Too much self-projection and not enough hospitality. The kind of greedy people at whom Nash took aim weren't just after luxury goods, they also wanted property. Renting in Nash's London was a precarious business, draining in more ways than one. As Vanessa Harding explains, the city was expanding so quickly that its older systems of government couldn't keep up. This is the period when London's medieval government, which covers the city alone, begins to find itself as we're rather left behind as the city itself, as the metropolis spreads out beyond the boundaries of its jurisdiction. So the city centre, the city within the walls and immediately outside the walls, has actually a very practised, experienced, um, well-organised system of government with a mayor, with aldermen representing each of the wards, with a common council which gives citizens some voice in government, uh, and with a whole infrastructure of uh, local administration both at ward level and at parish level. So, I mean, I don't think anybody would say that London was in any sense ungovernable or even lacking in government, at least as far as they're talking about the city. But again, I think it's the suburbs where population and building is spreading beyond the area under the jurisdiction of the mayor and alderman, where this sense of London being disorderly or not easily controlled, not easily contained is again most prominent. It's about that time in the early 1580s that the government starts to get anxious about this and issues proclamations that there should be no new building or no building on new foundations, no subdivision and so on. I mean, that just seems to be completely hopeless. It doesn't do anything to stem the flow. But I would think that most people in London at that time, many of whom are, of course, migrants themselves, would be really aware of the sense that London is changing under their eyes, under their feet as they live there. The result was a premium on space in central London and a chaotic rental market in which landlords held all the cards. If you live in London in the 2020s, that might sound familiar. There's a really interesting example in Henry Chettle's Kind Heart's Dream, which is a pamphlet from 1592. So again, this is a, a near contemporary of Nash, someone he, he may well have known, probably did know. And he, he writes this kind of pamphlet. And in the middle of it, there's a meditation on what it is like to be a renter in 1590s London. And he describes this kind of alley-like space. So a space that has got a number of small rooms in it that are being rented out to individuals. And the person who owns them, in this case, it's a landlady. And I suppose it's worth emphasising that actually um, a number of the kind of property owners and property managers across Elizabethan London are women as well as men. And this is one area in which they're kind of important economic agents. But in this instance, one of the landladies uh, of this space insists that all of the people who are kind of living within their tenement block, they're, they're all owing her rent. So as a, as a means of kind of lending or you know payday lending that rent, or pay it to me in two weeks, they have to buy all of their food and their drink from her tippling house at the front. So you've got kind of not only the fact that you're in a really rubbish accommodation in the centre of London, it's probably costing way too much, but you're having to do all your shopping at your landlady's pub, basically, in order to get by. <laughs> and whilst this is a kind of satirical sketch, 
the City of London records, there are so many examples of people exactly like this woman. Here's Henry Chettle himself. I would the heart of the city were whole, for both within and without, extreme cruelty causeth much beggary. Some landlords, having turned an old brew house, bakehouse, or dye house into an alley of tenements, will either themselves, or some at their appointment, keep tippling in the forehouse, as they call it, and their poor tenants must be enjoined to fetch bread, drink, wood, coal, and such other necessaries in no other place. And there, till the week's end, they may have anything of trust, provided they lay to pawn their holiday apparel. Nay, my landlady will not only do them that good turn, but if they want money, she will on Monday lend them, likewise upon a pawn, eleven pence, and in mere pity asks at the week's end not a penny more than twelve pence. Oh, charitable love! Happy tenants of so kind a landlady. I can think of happier motivations to go to the pub than being blackmailed into buying my groceries there. For a writer like Nash, there were plenty of better reasons to head down the tavern. Callan Davies is keen to stress that these were more than places of refreshment. They were literary spaces too. It's easy to forget that a lot of these lodging houses that we've just been talking about, they don't have the facilities for you to cook food or prepare food. So you've really just got a room or a bedroom. Uh, So if you want to go and eat and drink anything at any time of the day, you have to go and put yourself in a victualling house or a tavern. In London in particular, people would be hanging out in specific kind of inn or tavern spaces. So inns, taverns, alehouses in this period were marked out by a sign that would be kind of flying or, or, or painted outside it. Like the happening cultural spaces of today, some of them became romanticised. So we have something like the sign of the mermaid. The mermaid tavern is maybe a little later than Nash, but this is a, a real space, but also one that's become slightly mythologised because that's where Shakespeare is said to have hung out with other of his contemporary, play, of contemporary playwrights like Ben Jonson and so on, maybe, maybe some 10 years later or five or 10 years later. And Johnson has this fantastic phrase in one of his plays when he talks about people haunting the globes and mermaids. So in, in Johnson's mind, you have these kind of fashionable, literate people, people like Nash, who are on the one hand at a playhouse, and then on the other hand, they're at the Mermaid Tavern chatting to people, chatting to people like him. Haunting and chatting, but also, Callan Davies thinks, writing. Playwriting and, and to an extent sort of other forms of authorship in this period are extremely collaborative ways of working. We're moving away from this idea that um, which kind of comes from a romantic sense of, of the writer, of the kind of Shakespeare who sat in his room with his pen and he's pouring his genius onto the page without distraction. But actually, you know, what, what the past however many decades of scholarship ha- have continued to show is that That is not how people vote in this period. It's not how people create it. It was a really kind of social environment. So you may well be in the pub writing this, dividing up the play. Oh, you do, you know, I'll do the first act and you do this. You know, there's lots of different ways in which we might speculate how, how, how some of these plays are divided. And perhaps this rhythm of work lives on in Nash's style. His writing has got this improvisatory style. Um, you know, scholars and, and Nash himself calls, calls it a kind of extemporal style. And that word meaning to kind of come up with things on the hoof, ad hoc, as though you're making it up in your head. And that really is rooted in, in precisely those spaces whose cultures are 
improvisatory. You know, you could be sat in the moment and some other type of entertainment may well be going on. So you've got constant fuel for your someone like Nash's creativity. Uh, and the idea that you're writing, as, as his prose can sometimes suggest, a stream of consciousness that is just on the street reporting, kind of gonzo <laughs> pamphlet writing. What a great job description, a gonzo pamphlet writer. Nash's life in London seems to have been one continuous circuit between printer's shop, playhouse and tavern. All of these were spaces of creativity, but also of precarity, just like the lodgings for which he paid punishing rent. For London writers of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, the city wasn't just a place in which to eke out a literary living. It was also somewhere to describe. As Vanessa Harding explains, plenty of writers had already described London, but Nash & Co. did it differently. London has a long tradition of Londoners writing about London. It's very prominent in the 15th century in the London Chronicles, which use writing about London's history as a way of, in some ways, enhancing um, civic awareness and civic sense of belonging. There is a long tradition of encomia, of praises of London, in which people talk about all the good things, about its prosperity and its healthfulness and its beauty and its public spending and so on. But the idea of actually looking at the underside of London and London life is in fact perhaps something that that comes up with Decker and people writing like him. That's Thomas Decker, London playwright and pamphleteer, one of Nash's contemporaries and competitors. Decker was especially fascinated by the rich sensuality of London's grimy underside. Here he is in Work for Armourers, published in 1609, describing the horrible practice of bear-baiting. What merry gale shall we then wish for, unless it be to ferry over the river and cross from London to the bear garden? The company of the bears hold together still. They play their tragicomedies as lively as ever they did. More theatricality there, in the idea of bears staging their own tragicomedies. In the end, the narrator decides that he will attend. No sooner was I entered, but the very noise of the place put me in mind of hell. The bear, dragged to the stake, showed like a black rugged soul that was damned and newly committed to the infernal charl, the dogs like so many devils inflicting torments upon it. But when I called to mind that all their tugging together was but to make sport to the beholders, I held a better and not so damnable an opinion of their beastly doings. For the bears fighting with the dogs was a lively representation, methought, of poor men going to law with the rich and mighty. Decker conjures up a boisterous city, never far from social conflict, encountering itself in crude, overpowering spectacles. But in another pamphlet, Lanthorn and Candlelight, Decker describes London at night. Suddenly the city is eerily quiet, full of anxious stillness. Every door on a sudden was shut. Not a candle stood peeping through any window. Not a vintner was to be seen brewing in his cellar. Not a drunkard to be met reeling. Not a mouse to be heard stirring. All the city showed like one bed, for all in that bed were soundly cast into a sleep. Noise made no noise, for every one that wrought with the hammer was put to silence. Yet, notwithstanding, when even the devil himself could have been contented to take a nap, there were few innkeepers about the town but had their spirits walking. So far we've concentrated on London, and rightly so, it's where Nash spent most of his writing life. 
But what happened when you left the capital? Of course, one way to exit was by dying, like Nash did before his time in 1601. We don't know what killed him, but it's likely to have been plague or another disease. According to Vanessa Harding, problems of burial in this period reflect London's growth and the convergence of the two ancient cities from which it emerges. An intrinsic problem with death, which is very frequent and common at this time, um, literally thousands of people die in London, is that the bodies have to be disposed of and that that's actually a problem on a number of different levels, both a sort of psychological one, but also a very practical one. So that the 1590s are when we're seeing a lot of city parishes, a lot of churches in the city centre and outside, really struggling with the problem that they don't have enough space to bury everybody. So dealing with death, dealing with the dead, is mostly comes down to parishes. And this works fairly well when the parishes are comparatively prosperous, can afford the costs of acquiring new land, can charge their parishioners appropriate sums for burial. But it does become more of a problem for the large, sprawling parishes outside the walls and over towards Westminster, where the population is growing, but the resources to deal with them, if you, we can regard the dead as an environmental problem, are, are lacking. So I think this is a time when probably burial is not as orderly, as well managed in parts of London as most people would like to think it was. Of course, there were other ways to leave London than in your coffin. Nash himself left towards the end of the 1590s, under a cloud. He'd written a controversial play called The Isle of Dogs and got into trouble. During his exile, he went back to East Anglia, to Great Yarmouth in Norfolk, which he described in the satirical but affectionate pamphlet Lenten Stuff. We shouldn't fall into the trap, says Callan Davies, of thinking that the journey away from London was into a cultural desert. That can create a misleading sense that London is the place where culture happens and that when you kind of go north of, well, not even Watford in this period, but when you go north of Shoreditch, that you're in a, com a completely different world and perhaps a backwards world. But that's not at all the way that Nash would have experienced it when he headed north on the Cambridge Road out towards Norfolk. There, there's a real rich provincial, for want of a better word, culture across England in this period. There's been some amazing work done to think about what vernacular might mean. So vernacular in the sense of expressing it in your native or kind of local fashion. So we, we talk about vernacular speech in separation from Latin to speak English. But there's also vernacular expressions that are hyperlocal. So we might think of vernacular arts, for instance, and, and look at the way that Chester or Cheshire do portraiture compared to what, what people in London might expect to get when they have their portrait painted. Precisely the same thing applies to performance culture too, and to the kind of pamphlet culture that, that Nash was engaged in. So all of the performances that took place in London toured around, these companies would be on the road, and they would also find themselves in Chester and also find themselves in Norfolk and Great Yarmouth, um, exactly where, where Nash ends up in, in Lenten stuff. So yes, there's a kind of movement of London outwards, which is the movement that Nash does towards the end of his life. But there's also a movement and an influence inward. So space is, you know, the, these, these places are innovative in their own right and have their own kind of cultures. And I think what's interesting is we can kind of flip some of the discussion we've just had about playhouses on its head. Because in the 1530s, in Great Yarmouth, somebody opened something called a game house. And this is, a, you know, really early for thinking about these kind of commercial playing spaces. But this is happening up there in the town that Nash eventually goes to, you know, 60 years later. So if we wanted to, you might choose that 
space as the origin of kind of this theatre history that tends to be situated in 1570s London. So maybe London was 40 years behind Norfolk. It wasn't all about the capital. Just like today, London and the rest of the country existed in a two-way economic and cultural relationship, variously harmonious and tense. Nash's writing doesn't belong to London, but was certainly inspired by it, by its playhouses and taverns and printing shops, and maybe even its multi-tenanted lodgings. These were places of extreme precarity and also of great invention. In the next episode, we'll be thinking about Nash's experimental forms, his sentences and genres, and his rich inventiveness on the printed page. Thanks for listening. I'm Archie Cornish. The Precarious World of Thomas Nash is produced and written by myself, Kathy Schrank, and Kate DeRaca. Editing by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Readings were by James Tucker. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. To find out more about our project and to access other Thomas Nash resources, visit research.ncl.ac.uk forward slash the Thomas Nash Project. <laughs>